welcome to another episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Well, hello, Broads. How are you? Hope you're all doing so well. Miss you all already. Truly. Um, I don't know if you saw via Instagram or heard on the podcast, but I have been not feeling so hot the past uh, week. I had some oral surgery and now Becca is sick. So please send her love. But yeah, the two of us have been under the weather and now we are just so excited to hop back into it and chat with you all about the batch news going on. Oh my gosh, the recap. We're so excited about the final four. Um, and we can't wait to do that. So that will be this coming Tuesday. Um, but this episode that you're about to listen to, this episode we actually recorded um, one year ago with Ty Simpson and Callie Wolf, and it's a re-release. And Becca and I both felt very passionately about wanting to re-release this episode. Um, Ty Simpson and Callie Wolf are incredible, and we're so grateful that they sat down and had this conversation with us. This is a powerful conversation, um, an important conversation, a conversation that needs to be heard again and again. So for those of you who listened to it a year ago, we hope that you enjoy this re-release. And for those of you who this is your first time hearing it, we know that you will love Ty Simpson and Callie Wolf. Again, thank you so much to Ty and Callie for um, coming on the show and having this conversation with us. Uh, And please make sure to check out the episode notes uh, because we have updates from the both of them, um, some new projects that they've worked on, also some um, new ways to donate. So please make sure to check out those episode notes and their work on Instagram. So before we dive in, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors and uh, then we'll get into it, Brabs. Listen, yes, sure, it's winter and a lot of decorations are out But here it's 75 degrees, and if I didn't know any better, I would have sworn it was the middle of July because the sun was shining bright in Los Angeles, which is all fine with me because it just means that I get to wear my blender sunglasses every day, which works out great because they're my favorite accessory at the moment. You know what, Jess? I agree. Sunglasses are great for so many things. They can hide a hangover. They can hide a sty. (laughs) I don't know why that came to mind. Obviously, they can protect your eyes from the sun. They can spice up a boring outfit. They are the Swiss Army knife of accessories. I like that, too. I want to roll today. Like Jess said, we love our Blender sunglasses. And the best thing about Blenders is the price. A pair of designer sunglasses can cost literally hundreds of dollars, which is ridiculous considering I lose mine or sit on them by the end of summer anyway. But Blenders are more affordable, and you can get multiple pairs for the price of one designer pair. Um, if I had a dollar for every pair of sunglasses I've lost over the years, actually, I don't even want to think about it. Okay. But that's why blenders are so amazing. Don't have to feel guilty about that. Also amazing quality, amazing quality. And the styles are so cute. They've got everything from polarized wraparounds to tortoiseshells to classic black lenses. Good luck just picking one pair. Okay. Blenders even has prescription glasses, readers, and blue light glasses. So whether you're outside enjoying the sun or stuck at your desk, Blenders has you covered. To score 15% off your Blenders purchase, visit BlendersEyewear.com and enter promo code CHATTYVIP. That's BlendersEyewear.com code chatty vip for 15% off 
lenders rocked with pride worldwide. Broads, are you feeling the parental pressure this season? I sometimes get so wrapped up in all the chaos of certain holidays and making everything perfect for my daughter, Ember. And I forget that the most important part, the only part that really matters is spending time together as a family and making memories. Um, And this year, we're making memories with the help of our friends at KiwiCo. They do all the prep work so we can focus on the fun part. So if you have little ones, KiwiCo is about to be your new best friend. You guys, they help keep your kiddos entertained, engaged, and, and they keep your kids learning all year long, too. And you'll get to make a lot of fun memories together along the way. Each month, KiwiCo delivers a crate full of awesome science, engineering, and art projects to your little learner that are all focused around one central theme or concept. The projects are super age-appropriate, and they explain it in a way that's really simple for your child to understand. And the best part, everything is included. Everything. All you need to do is open the crate and let the memory-making begin. And with winter break coming up for most schools, this is the perfect way to fill up some of that time off. The best part is watching your little one take the lead and gain confidence as they tackle new challenges and subjects. And I bet you'll end up learning a thing or two along the way. Also, trust me, Ember is always teaching me things, lessons she's learned with KiwiCo. So this holiday season, give the gift of a fun, hands-on holiday experience with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code chatty at kiwico.com. That's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code chatty. Okay, broads, now without any further ado, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ty Simpson and Callie Wolf. Hello. How are all of you? Um, today is Thursday, um, which I'm sure a lot of you are spending the day, the holiday of Thanksgiving on. And Becca and I, uh, you know, we've been going through the past couple episodes. Uh, we've been talking about conversations on race. We've been talking about um, anti-racism, um, being a co-conspirator. And we really, really today wanted to have a conversation um, about indigenous peoples. And Becca, you put on your Instagram a reach out for oh, yeah. some folks. And so many amazing people contacted us. But we are so grateful and so excited to have Ty Simpson and Callie Wolf in the building. Yay! Or on the Zoom, not in the building. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both so much for coming. We so appreciate it. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited to have this conversation, especially since I am an avid Chatty Prods listener. Yes, <laughs> love it. So thank you for holding this space for us. Oh, thank you so much. We would love to have maybe some intros about both of yeah. you. And um, I know both of you are involved in different areas of work and just, yeah, your backgrounds would be great. 
Okay. Uh, in my indigenous language, I said good day, and my name is the storyteller. Ty um, Simpson in English, my name is Ty Simpson. In my nation, I am a citizen of the Nimipu Nation. I also identify as Black. Um, I am a descendant of Chief Red Heart of the Nez Perce Nation. In the community, um, I am I'm an activist and an organizer with the Indigenous Idaho Alliance, and then I work as an advocate for the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. I essentially use storytelling, anti-racism education, and anti-oppression work um, to essentially interrupt cycles of violence in both Black and Indigenous communities. So mm-hmm. I'm just out here trying to damn the man, burn mm-hmm. it all down. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great intro. <laughs> Ahan mitakiepi, that means hello, my relatives, a common greeting in Lakota. I am Shichangu Lakota from South Dakota, and I'm currently living on Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute lands in Denver, Colorado, um, where I work as a board-certified emergency nurse. Um, and I'm also the coordinating director for Native Women's Wilderness, and we are an aspiring nonprofit. Um, I think we're in the bylaws section of that. But we um, aim to inspire and educate and help Native women, girls, and non-binary relatives get outdoors and also to educate the public about ancestral lands and whose lands we're on. Hmm. Well, speaking of that um, and speaking of lands, can we maybe hop into that uh, just kind of right off the top? I know that... um, some of the conversations, um, especially uh, in recent days, it, for at least for us, again, I'm talking as a white person who this was not part of a lot of the education that I had in my schooling system. I all of a sudden started to see land back, land back. Mm-hmm. We're talking about who, whose land you're on. And then I started doing some research looking at that. Um, could we talk about that? Yeah. And, and even in college, it's kind of crazy. Like even in higher education, I I learned a lot about you know, a lot of different things, but not really mm-hmm. anything about indigenous lands or where we were, where we, what land we were on. Yeah, I'm adding to that. <laughs> yeah, I you're you're bringing up a couple of different issues that culminate yeah. into like why we are in the place that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thank you, Callie, for reminding me. I am broadcasting from Niwa and Numu territory, so those are commonly known as Shoshone Bannock. Paiute and Yakima nations. Uh, Boise, Idaho is what we now call it, colonized territory. Land back initiatives um, have stemmed from the um, Lakota people after they had a direct action and protest against Trump coming to Mount Rushmore. So many folks don't know that Mount Rushmore, Seven Devils, the Black Hills, those are all indigenous cultural and spiritual landmarks. So the land back initiatives aren't just about acknowledging that these are dispossessed lands, but it's also about like, just give the damn land back. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big proponent of land acknowledgements for that reason, where we like it's it's touchy feely. It feels progressive. It's all the warm fuzzies. Oh, indigenous people used to live here. But it's also recognizing that we were dispossessed very forcefully, very violently. And land back initiatives, one, acknowledge that historical atrocity and two, 
encourage our accomplices, our white folks who are in the practice of being our accomplices and co-conspirators are actively engaged in trying to get our land back to us. Um, what's really interesting is um, when folks hear land back, white folks especially hear land back, it's as if we're going to kick you all out, like you're it's all living panic. Right now. <laughs> like, you're like, where are we going to go? Well, I mean, you're here now, like, it's fine. Um, but land back is an initiative about making sure that land stewardship is in the hands of indigenous people. Uh, white folks have shown us over the course of of two, four to 200 years, 200 to 400 years that um, y'all are why we can't have nice things like the over harvesting of animals and plants, um, mm. extraction industries, so oil and fossil fuels, ores, silver, gold, iron, and then um, just the sheer depletion of access. So I am Nimipu, or from the Nez Perce Nation. We had access to nearly 70 million acres of ancestral territory pre-contact, pre-settler colonialist contact. And now we are uh, stewards of 700,000 acres. So again, 70 million acres now depleted down to 700,000. Um, so that has an adverse effect on us socially, culturally, economically. And we're still feeling those, uh, those effects even today. Yeah, actually, there was a case, I believe, last year, maybe you know a little bit more about this than I do, in Eureka, California, where they returned 200 acres of land back to um, the indigenous, I think it's the Wyatt tribe, um, and that was known as Indian Island, and the public can still visit this land. The local tribe is in um, ownership and stewardship of that land. Hmm. And so it's not always referring to a non-Native person giving an Indigenous person their home, um, but allowing us to have stewardship and management. And another topic that comes up when we discuss this is uh, wildfires. And we know that Indigenous nations have been doing controlled burns or cultural burns yeah. for centuries and have been able to hold off such rampant wildfires fires that we're experiencing today. Hmm. Um, so that's a Another reason why it's important to have Indigenous people manage these lands that we have known for for so many centuries. Ty, I have a question. You're using the term dispossessment. What it, what does that mean and why um, the use of that term versus like another term like displacement? Well, it's both. I, I right. thank you. Like identifying that language and what language we use is uh, is important. It is. It was forced displacement. It was violent dispossession. Those things are synonymous. Okay. The displacement refers to us being able to freely move on our ancestral homeland, mm -hmm. now being displaced to an Indian reservation. Those reservations aren't designed to be some like utopia for indigenous people. They were literally a prison with a fort or more than one fort on that reservation to keep us called and corralled into this small space since we were no longer allowed to move freely or migrate freely or harvest game or fish or our roots and berries freely. Uh, so that's the displacement, the forced displacement piece. The forced dispossession, of course, is not being able to steward lands that we've been on. Like my tribe yeah. is, um, has archaeological and geographical evidence of 15,000 years on our homeland. And so that our ways of knowing that are passed from generation to generation, while we don't consider them science because it's not published published in some peer-reviewed journal, it is silence, science, it is geography, it is geology. Like we know the land better than anybody because we've been stewards of the land for so, so many generations. Mm -hmm. 15,000 years is science. That's not myth, mythology or folklore, you know? So maybe we need to go back a little bit into this history mm -hmm. that I think a lot of us just don't really know about. Even as you're talking about this, I'm like, I don't, I guess I don't really even know how logistically indigenous people were forced into um, 
uh, these reservations. I actually don't know anything about that or or what things really looked like outside of cowboy movies that you see growing up. And that's sure not a great way to get educated about yeah, these not issues. Accurate representation. <laughs> no. So maybe we could just sort of go back to just basic history. Yeah. I also we talked about this on the last episode. Um, I didn't know until recently that it was literally millions and millions and millions of indigenous peoples. It's sort of the way it's represented in history. As you learn it, it seems like it's like several thousand, which I know sounds silly to say, but it's sort of the way that it has been represented in a lot of our education growing up mm-hmm. instead of entire yeah, like massacre of people. Yeah, I actually was raised in a predominantly white area, um, a really small farm town outside of Chicago, Illinois. And my school experience is very similar despite being native myself. Um, you know, I was a token native, so I didn't have any other native classmates or friends until I was an adult and actually left the area. But I recently stumbled across a fourth grade social studies notebook. And I mean, I'm sure you can imagine what I had found in my own handwriting mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the settlers were nice to the natives, that John Smith was nice to the natives. I mean, I experienced exactly what I think most white Americans experienced in the public school system. Um, So I can relate to that. And I relate to, you know, finding out what actually happened as an adult. I mean, I I remember my dad gave me the book, which is written by a white author, but it's besides the point. um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. And he told me, Callie, this is going to be hard to read. And I thought he meant this is going to be boring. It's history. History is boring. But it took me a couple chapters to realize what he meant was that it was emotionally hard. Uh, I still to this day haven't gotten more than halfway through the book. And that's just a glimpse at the history from, you know, pre-colonial times until now. Um, So as a Native person trying to catch up or trying to unlearn and relearn, it has been really emotionally tolling on me. So there are times where I have to kind of step back and, you know, this isn't the time for me to learn about this right now. Um, So I have, you know, that kind of unique experience with where I was raised and where I grew up. But a lot of my peers, um, you know, still are very, I don't want to say ignorant, but it is ignorant um, about what we experienced in the past, what we experience today and current struggles that are still going on. Uh, My first personal uh, struggle, I guess, would be with a Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm-hmm. I remember just sitting in my house and thinking, I feel this pull and I need to do something and I don't know what to do. I'm so new to to this fight and I'm not sure where I'm needed. And it was just in my heart that I was drawn there. And that really kind of kickstarted my whole uh, experience and journey and, you know, reconnecting and relearning my culture, my language, ceremonies, and everything. So I just wanted to share that little bit of background information with this all, because mm-hmm. I do relate to the topic of education and how how we've missed so much. That's such a true story, and it's it's by design, right? I also grew up, oddly enough, was born in Peoria, Illinois. Spent oh, some wow. <laughs> yeah, like, so, yay! <laughs> so small. Um, I grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods, predominantly white schools, but that was by design. Um, my father, having grown up uh, in South Chicago, where it is um, the all of the 
stereotypical urban black community disparities that you could imagine. And it was his mission to keep us from that, us being me and my brother. Um, I appreciate what he was trying to do. I can code switch like a boss now in and out of like with white folks, with black folks, with indigenous people. Uh, and that that's a useful skill and a useful tool to navigate the world that we're in. But regarding the education piece, uh, that's a symptom of colonization, right? So colonization by design is meant to entirely strip and deplete indigenous people of our cultures, our language and our land and replace it with whiteness and patriotism and um, Western academic standards. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you're not going to learn that it was a few million, if not hundreds of millions of indigenous people that were wiped out, a genocide, an annihilation. Um, rather, it's a few thousand. It's just a, a small massacre, a blip in the history of indigenous people. Because when that's the case, it's hard to humanize us that way, right? It's when we are, when we remain dehumanized and when we remain marginalized, it's easy to justify the continued um, theft of our land, um, the continue the continued dishonoring of our treaties, like any number of those things are meant to take place by design because of colonization. Uh, my, my mom had to work really hard to counteract um, the same thing that Callie went through, like reading about myself in a fourth grade social studies book versus what the stories my mom was actually telling me at home. Like, fortunately, my mom is equally as radical as I am, very deeply uh, and spiritually grounded in being Nimipu and being a matriarch that I was able to always know that Columbus was not who the book said he was, that John Smith was a rapist and that was an instance of human trafficking, you know, that we were not, Thanksgiving wasn't about friendship, it was about a massacre of indigenous people, uh, you know, so those things are meant to, that's why the work that we do now um, when it comes to anti-racism, when it comes to decolonization, when it comes to anti-oppression is about looking back into history and learning history from the very truthful place, despite how tumultuous and gut-wrenching it is to reread it in its truest form so that we can start to make amends and move forward um, in a way that makes us good neighbors, in a way that um, makes sure that indigenous communities are liberated and have enough. Because even to this day, I mean, everything that we're talking about isn't historical. Indigenous communities, like 5,700 missing and murdered indigenous women across the country right now, um, the disparities, access clean access to water, internet, internet as a utility versus a luxury, like so many of those things remain disparities the most amongst indigenous people and Native American tribes. Um, another big example is the Dene people or Navajo people, as we know them, have the highest rates of um, coronavirus per capita. And that comes, it's a very rural and remote reservation. It covers four states. And so some of these awareness campaigns around COVID and staying safe and staying healthy uh, couldn't reach people because they just simply didn't have the internet. Mm -hmm. And if they don't know to stay at home and self-isolate, they're going to continue to have community and cultural events without understanding the risk, which is why the adverse impact takes place. Uh, I'm not surprised that you didn't know. I'm not surprised that you don't like, that's something that I come up against every time that I have conversations like these or anytime I host, you know, conversations around Native American history and how to be better um, moving forward, like what partnerships could look like with tribes. So it's, it's frustrating, but we can undo it. It's possible to undo it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of what you were saying, Callie, like, you know, going through, I recently, um, I, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter now. And so, um, 
were trying to have different conversations than I had when I was younger. And so I was going through old homeschooling books that I had. And and when I was reading through the history books, it, it was, um, you know, shocking to say the least now. And I just know just a small piece. Um, so one of the things that I that I did want to touch on were some of the, you know, the common the common lies that we are taught, like you were saying, Ty, because of colonization um, that we are taught in the United States um, through education uh, about the history of indigenous people in this country. Common misconceptions, I guess. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have one that was somebody recently said to me that they thought that we just stopped speaking our language and practicing our cultures because we wanted to fit into American culture. And I think a lot of people may think this way because we've never been taught otherwise, unless you've experienced it or have a family member who has experienced cultural genocide, um, which is exactly what happened. And this is about boarding schools, um, which was not in our textbooks, certainly not in our fourth grade textbooks. Um, and this has impacted probably all of our family members up until my dad's generation. I know that my great-great-grandfather was sent from central South Dakota to Pennsylvania to Carlisle Indian Boarding School, which was one of the first, if not the first, and most well-known boarding schools. And the man who founded this idea, Captain Richard Pratt, is known for his quote saying, all the Indian there is left in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. So they wanted to rid us of our cultural ways and turn us into civilized Americans, you know. And I was able to find a picture of my great-great-grandfather post-boarding school era. And, um, you know, when they entered these schools, they were young children elementary school, taken away from their families. they had never been away from their families. Uh, they had such ties to their language and culture and ceremonies, but they were put into these institutions where they were forced to cut their hair, um, which is a very traumatizing experience in our culture. You know, our hair, long hair is an extension of our spirit. Mm. Um, they were forced to speak English. They were forbidden from speaking their native languages, whether that's Lakota or, or other languages, um, forced to take new names, to take white Christian names. Um, and they experienced a lot of abuse at these boarding schools. A lot of them died due to abuse. A lot of them died due to illness and disease, um, due to being inside, which was you know, your, your body has to adapt from being mostly outdoors to now being inside. And because they were homesick and there are stories of these families who would travel thousands of miles to be near the schools, just near them. They couldn't see their children, but they would, they would set up outside the school just to be closer. And this is something that really has impacted all of us. And there's reasons why I didn't grow up learning Lakota language. You know, our grandparents were forbidden. They had to make these tough decisions on, should I just not speak it so that they are never harmed for it? Um, And I would say that, you know, just speaking with my dad, I kind of feel like I'm the first person in our family who has been able to pursue that Mm. without harm. 
um, I'm able to openly learn and speak my language without having to fear for my safety. It was in his generation where the American Indian uh, Religious Freedom Act was passed in 1978. So that was like a little over 40 years ago. Um, and before that, it was illegal for us to practice our ways, for us to have ceremony. And so that was during his lifetime. Um, so that just brings some truth to how just from one generation to the next, things are so different. Um, yeah. So that's a little bit on a really heavy topic. It's interesting that you bring up the cultural erasure too, because I just thought of an example. My dad's um, Mexican and when he went to school as a kindergartner here in California, his name was Jose. And the teacher, like the first thing that she said when he sat down was like, "You're, we're going to call you Joe. And so ever since then, you know, his name has been Joe. And it's like, there's examples even in our, I mean, he's not that old in our public education systems now of like erasing someone's culture to be replaced by, yeah, white European na name. Like the name is the essence of who you are. It's pretty, mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's violent. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's like, that's the word we're looking for is it's violent. Yeah. Colonization is violent. You know, assimilation is violent. None of these, none of these things took place in a peaceful, um, liberated sort of way. This was about the subjugation of an entire chunk of humanity. And uh, I think that um, like these, the historical ramifications of, of boarding schools and even like our modern public education systems are still just as damaging to our young people. Um, I, I'm thankful also, just like Callie, to be able to learn and speak my language openly. And it also makes me really uh, feel a sense of deep gratitude and big love for my ancestors that still fought to keep mm -hmm. this language going despite the violence and despite the rape and forced displacement. So I'm, I'm grateful in that way. Um, to, to speak specifically to your question about some of these misconceptions, there's a few that stand out like right in the front. Um, there's this weird misconception about Indians, Native American tribes. Side note, I use indig indigenous, Native American, Native American, American Indian, all like intro, like interchangeably. Um, but I prefer to use indigenous, but Indian countries, Indian country, that term is based on treaty language with the federal government, but we now use it as like a giant Indian community that we are. Um, so uh, Indian country, like we are super impoverished reservations, right, that are dilapidated and unlivable, but we have all of this free money from casinos, right? So that's almost like a, um, like a counterintuitive misconception on both sides, like a common stereotype on both sides, whether it's positive or negative. We don't get free education. Um, we don't get free healthcare. We don't get um, like money from the government every month. Like these things are just really strange to me about how, how this, these ideas keep getting perpetuated to give you like a new age contemporary example of how these misconceptions are harmful, despite folks' best intentions. Um, there are people who practice native American culture. Like, so think about that for a second. Like how do you practice something that encompasses nearly 700 tribes mm -hmm. and 200 indigenous languages, right? right? There is no such thing as a practice of native American culture. And then there are different pieces and practices of different tribes that are appropriated and bastardized. The selling of um, sage at Urban Outfitters is one example that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, the appropriation of um, indigenous artists being mm -hmm. used in fine art and fashion without 
accrediting the original artist. Um, people who use terms like spirit animal, if that's not an actual ceremonial spiritual practice of that community, then you don't have a spirit animal. That's not a thing that exists for white folks. Um, Tribe. Tribe, using the name tribe. We still use that also, like also from federal treaty language, like tribe is, but we're not tribes, we're nations, right? Or communities or, you know, those are, that's language that's also a misconception. Um, And even the like historical untruths, (laughs) like the story of Thanksgiving in particular, um, that one is a misconception. Um, Pocahontas is not a story of true love it's a story of human trafficking and sexual violence which of course is a common a common thread across all indigenous communities uh historically 70 percent of the nations in the united states are matriarchies which meant part of colonization was to dismantle the foundation of these communities by violating assaulting and murdering indigenous women at a very rapid pace right if you don't have a of a woman uh to continue to make more babies, then essentially the tribe is going to, you know, breed itself out of existence. And that's the same thing that goes with um, blood quantum systems, the system of blood quantum in the United States, right? So when, whether you're enrolled or not uh, and how that's determined for membership. What is that? that? um, Blood blood quantum. Uh, Blood quantum is a system instituted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs during um, the Indian Wars and our resettlement programs onto reservations that said, uh, that gave us a fraction of blood based on which nation we belong to. So at the time during the Indian Allotment Act, it was everybody that was a Nez Perce person, for example, on paper became four-fourths Native Nez Perce or four-fourths Cayuse or four-fourths something. And then genetically, when we started to have babies and build families, then we now become fractions of a particular nation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a really horrible systemic process of annihilation of a tribe, because if you think about it, big picture, if a tribe breeds itself out of existence, there is no longer any reason or any people to honor the treaty with. And that's why it was about land accumulation. And it was a, to further steal land from our people. There are some nations that are decolonizing that process where the nation is determining who is a member and who isn't. The communities are determining who is afforded enrollment and who is um, participating in the culture and showing up in the community in a good way, which is really good. Like the people should be be determining who their people are. Mm -hmm. But that's not always the case. Like I am Nez Perce, but I also have an actual identification card that tells you I'm Nez Perce and then the degree of Indian blood that I am. And uh, the only creatures on the planet that have that are Native Americans, dogs and horses. So um, it's it really is a very dehumanizing system and very painful, especially when it came to the displacement of families to boarding schools and then and then part of their homecoming. Like then what happens to those folks? Right? Yeah, I had questions about this just regarding identity in general as an indigenous person, because they're you know, like you have your literally your identification card Then I'm also curious about people who have been displaced or have lost literally all of their family. Like I'm thinking of children going to boarding schools. If the rest of their family is lost, will that person be able to move forward in their life and in their future generations, having any identity rooted in where they've come from? Or does that just get washed away? Especially, um, yeah, with the displacement of people and, and, and yeah, is there, is that an issue in, 
um, I'm assuming that's an issue in indigenous groups in the United States. And like, what if people are, is there a big movement of people trying to find where they came from as well? Yeah. Um, I think another thing that comes into play here is forced adoptions. So for decades, you know, native children were sold into white families, um, as another way to assimilate or to remove us from our culture. And this was a practice that was pretty widespread practice. Um, You know, in 1978, I believe Indian Child Welfare Act was passed sometime along that. Um, And this, this act aimed to keep native children within native families because it was recognized that this was being used as a way to separate a native child from their family, from their land. And there were not necessarily reasons why they were taken. Um, and all, oftentimes, you know, just cultural differences, such as uh, not being raised in a quote unquote nuclear family mm. were reason enough to remove a child. You know, we have a lot of um, intergenerational households and families and a lot of grandparent involvement and a child is raised by, you know, their extended family, not just the immediate family. And so, this was used at times as a way to remove that child. And this has happened within my own family and my family members who are, you know, returning to the family as an adult and, you know, trying to work through the trauma that they experienced from this forced adoption. Um, so that definitely is a factor, Becca, um, in people not knowing, you know, their, their family history or where they come from. And it's it's like it's basically kidnapping, like forced adoption exactly. is kidnapping. It is exactly kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The uh, you, I always try to avoid being super problem saturated, right? Like these conversations are very difficult. We we understand that there's a lot of disparity and atrocity that takes place in Native American communities, but our resiliency is also something to celebrate. So in that vein, there are programs like the one, the two that stand out are in the Lakota Nation and the Anishinaabe people. So those are what we know as Ojibwe people have what's called homecoming organizations or homecoming departments for each of their nations. So if people can somehow find some semblance of affiliation to either of those tribes, they're welcomed back in. There's a mm-hmm. ceremony for them. There's conversations about who their family families may or may not be. And then every year they have a whole powwow welcoming that person back home. So they're home to the community. It's not necessarily that they're coming home to a nuclear family, like Callie mentioned, they're coming home to their people. And that really is empowering for these. And we're talking, some of these folks are into their sixties and seventies, just now having these ceremonies and just now finding some peace and healing from all of the trauma they've endured in their whole life. Like imagine not knowing who your people are and always feeling a little bit disconnected from everybody around you because they're not your people. Our indigenousness is also attached to our land and our tactile relationship to the earth and to the way we harvest and gather. So if you don't have that your entire life, knowing that you're a Native American person, there's also a level of disconnect there. So those programs for the Lakota people and for the Anishinaabe people should be celebrated in that they're doing their best to reach out and open arms to their people who may have been lost to them. And um, I, I loved seeing the pictures. I love hearing them celebrate and talk about it. Because in those ceremonies, they also have conversations around um, addiction and mental health and um, 
men's support groups for those who've chose to use violence. And there's just like all of these rehabilitative and restorative programs to bring this community back together and to pull all of those threads tighter. So I would love to see that in every indigenous nation, like especially those most adversely impacted by um, the forced adoption, the displacement to boarding schools, but bringing our people home is important. Mm. I'd like to speak on that real quick because I was actually part of that ceremony. In yes. <laughs> yeah. So I was, a, I was adopted at birth um, and I was adopted from a Shichangu Lakota family into a Shichangu Lakota family. My adoptive mother um, was white though. So my adoptive father is native. Um, so both families are from the same nation. Um, so I did grow up, you know, knowing who I was. I wasn't forced or separated in that way. But I had heard about this welcome home ceremony from one of my relatives who did experience that forced adoption um, and separation from their family. And I I knew I was going up to Rosebud Fair that summer. And I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind. I was like, I'm not gonna make a big deal out of it. I'm not gonna reach out. I'm just gonna play it by ear and see what happens. So I get there and I was with my husband and he knows nothing of what's going on. And I was just like, I'll be right back. And so I snuck off to meet this group. And I was like, hey, do you think I could join? <laughs> I, I was adopted and um, you know, I, I grew up my whole life a thousand miles away. And I don't know if I'm if this is for me or who it's for. And of course they were so welcoming and said, of course, come here, get in line. They wrapped me in a shawl. And here I was, I really honestly had no clue what was going on, but um, we had the ceremony. They announced us by our uh, birth family's name and our adoptive family's name. And then we went around the, um, the circle in the powwow grounds and were greeted by every member that was out there. And I was actually able to find some more of my birth family through this ceremony that I just showed up at like two minutes before it started um, because they had heard my birth mother's name being announced. So I met one of my aunts and I met um, some of my siblings um, that had also been adopted. I had met some of their families and it was just a really empowering and beautiful ceremony. Wow. And Sandy Whitehawk is the woman who started this on the Rosebud Reservation. And they are, uh, they created a documentary called Blood Memory, and it's streaming this entire month for free. And I encourage everybody to watch it. It just shows you, uh, you know, this complex subject of the pain and then what you gain when you return. And it just had me in tears. And I love what they're doing. It, it shows you both sides. And yeah, thank you for bringing that up because sometimes I get sucked into. <laughs> into the problem saturation. Yeah, we, I, I love that for you. Thank you for sharing that. I love that for you. Oh, so great. Is going kind of off of that vein, could we talk a little bit about what that connection with the land looked like? Like, mm. how did these Native peoples live on this land? And how, yeah, could could we talk a little bit about that history and what life looked like? Okay, Broads, one more quick pause. Listen, wouldn't it be just so much easier if health was as simple as just eating those greens plus exercising and that equals a long and healthy life? Yeah. 
in our dreams, right? It's a bit more complicated than that, as you may know. In fact, research increasingly shows that one of the most crucial factors to having a healthy life is actually having a healthy gut microbiome. If you suffer from type 2 diabetes or know someone who does, this is extra important. Yeah, it can be a lot to keep straight. I totally get that. So that's why we wanted to tell you about Pendulum. Pendulum glucose control is the first and only medical probiotic clinically shown to help manage type 2 diabetes when taken with medication. So in the past, a lot of the direction has been that if you just eat healthy and exercise, you can control type 2 diabetes. But it turns out that without a healthy gut, you might not see the results you want. But with Pendulum, you can lower your after-meal blood glucose levels easily, which then helps manage your type 2 diabetes. And again, it's a lot to keep straight and science constantly changes, so it can be tough to keep up with everything. But that's what's so cool about Pendulum. Their team of doctors and innovators are doing groundbreaking work and have been able to isolate the unique strains of beneficial gut bacteria that can be so beneficial in managing blood sugar. Uh, It's such a huge development in changing the way that diabetes has been talked about and managed for years. So if you or someone you love has type 2 diabetes, You can take control of glucose levels with Pendulum Glucose Control. Use code CHATTY at PendulumLife.com to get 20% off all products. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com, promo code CHATTY for 20% off. Broads, I cannot tell you how many times I've signed up for a free trial because I wanted to try a service or watch a specific movie or get a discount on a product and then forgotten to cancel, only to be charged for months on end afterwards, all because companies are super sneaky. Okay, it's time to take back control, cancel those unused or unwanted subscriptions, and get your money back with Truebill. This app is such a freaking good idea. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, want, or that you really just forgot you even signed up for. Oh, brilliant. Here's how corporations always get me. They make it really impossible to cancel. So even if you do set a reminder to cancel before your free trial is up or whatever you need to do, figuring out how to actually cancel can be an impossible task. But with just one simple click, Truebill can cancel all your unwanted subscriptions. It's brilliant. Okay, on average, Truebill's 2 million users save up to $720 a year. It just takes a matter of minutes for Truebill to go through all of your existing subscriptions and start saving you money. Listen, when I made an account, I was actually kind of shocked at just how much money I was spending each month. Like, I was shocked. After going through each account and figuring out what I actually used and what I could do without, Truebill helped me get out of three memberships I literally forgot I even ever signed up for. And I immediately saved 25 bucks a month. It's incredible. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash chatty. So go right now, Truebill.com slash chatty. It could save you literally thousands a year. Truebill.com slash chatty. So there was an era of anthropologists who called Native Americans just nomads, right? Ignoring the fact that some indigenous nations had cities like whole ass cities built in the United States before it was the United States. Right. So we can't ignore the fact that we had full economies, um, full patterns of migration and movement. 
because it ignored like the cultural relevance of why we were attached to the land in the way that we are or not attached. Right. Um, in my, in my tribe specifically, in my nation specifically, we are salmon people. So we follow the migration of the salmon season by season where we can acquire it. The easiest is where we'll set up camp. We also do that same practice with, with big game. Where, where is our food? And if you follow and track the natural ecological patterns of big game, elk, moose, deer, uh, bears, they are navigating the land based on seasonal warmth, right? Where is it tempted? Where are they going to be safe and comfortable? Why wouldn't humans follow the same patterns, right? Like, why would we just be out here running amok randomly somewhere on the land? Like, like it's just this really interesting, like, perspective to completely ignore the fact that what they see as nomadic, which has a connotation of being haphazard, is actually seasonal movement and it was the same places every year every season we have artifacts that have been um dug up unfortunately and you know studied for how long that pattern of behavior was taking place where we had controlled fires our cultural burns same place every year the reason why that's done controlled burns kind of as an aside is because the um fauna at the floor of the forest um grows back like just flourishes the next two seasons after a wildfire so they're essentially creating a space where they know there will be big game a couple of seasons after a forest was set on fire so all of it is science all of it is Mm -hmm. ecological and um savvy on how to to live and be a part of the land Um, our creation stories also um, ensure that we are honoring and respecting our relationship to land and that we don't um, over extract we don't dig into the land um, that we are never taking more than we need that we don't waste um, that we are honoring a sacrifice that an animal makes to be our sustenance we use as much of the animal as we can Um, we don't poison or um, toxify our water like that's also our relationship to water is really important and uh i mean so it's and i wish we could say well i'm not even going to say that like the way you asked the question was like what was our relationship like no this is what our relationship is which is why we're able to maintain um our sovereignty over this land and why we champion so much for our own stewardship of the land uh thankfully why certain practices around national monuments and national parks in the United States. There's always somebody who's indigenous at that table dictating to folks like this is the relationship and this is how the land needs to be protected. And, you know, climate climate justice in the United States at its core is led by indigenous people because our relationship is about justice for the planet, justice for the environment, justice for the water. So it's a it's an ongoing relationship and we're doing what we can despite colonization, despite having to live now in this contemporary capacity, but still respecting what is left of nature and still honoring, you know, the way that she moves and the way she behaves. I was just thinking as you were saying, um, you were talking about how that's a very pointed way of moving around. It's very, it all makes sense. And I was just thinking that that's, I guess, a tactic of, uh, this colonial narrative to say that it's this aimless roaming because if people are just aimlessly roaming, then you're not taking anything away from them because nothing nothing was theirs in the first place. So it's like a way to water down what was actually done, I, I suppose. 
Yeah. If you, um, there's a couple of books that address this, but 1491 comes to mind. And then the indigenous people's history of the United States also comes mm-hmm. to mind, but it talks about where you find the confluence of rivers in the United States. There was likely a full blown economic urban center mm-hmm. for indigenous people in that space. If you follow the natural migration routes of indigenous people, what we know of them now, um, they would likely follow rivers or likely follow weather patterns, right? So it's strategic. It is, it wasn't aimless roaming, but to consider it aimless, like you said, to underscore that was to um, perpetuate the narrative of savages, right? Mm -hmm. That we didn't know how to be on the land just because we weren't farming it. Also excluding the stories of agriculture that come out of the Southwest, right? Those Mm -hmm. were some of the oldest agricultural practices on the planet. And yet we don't name those in some of our books in our history and, and literature and science, you know, and that's, a, that's an important, uh, that's an important truth that I think that we need to center in some of these conversations that we existed and flourished as indigenous people before contact and, and those ways of knowing still survived. Mm. It's sort of like the super twisted act of like uh, a twisting the narrative of this white saviorism, I suppose is like, I think a lot, what a lot of people are sold is like we helped, which is kind of disgusting when you say it out loud. It's like, Oh, we somehow helped these people who didn't know what they were doing. And uh, anyway, please, please continue. Going off of what you said, Ty, um, it reminds me of Chicago and how how many how many indigenous nations use that those waterways as a trade route. And I recall a few years ago, I'm um, looking a little bit deeper into the indigenous history of the Chicagoland area where I grew up, and discovering that there was trade routes where there are now now highways like I-88, Interstate 88, I-94, 294. 355, those were all indigenous trading routes um, that were well-established that just became highways. And same with California. I know the the new Mupoyo Trail, which is known as John Muir Trail Mm -hmm. now, going up through Yosemite, that was an indigenous trading route also. Wow. So, you know, these, there's proof. There's proof that we had these flourishing ecosystems and economies and it's there. Yeah. And we still see it. I mean, if there's a highway on it now, it was because of indigenous people. Right. Uh, I, I had a sociology professor back back in the day. God, it's been a long time since I've been out of college. Uh, and he he was this white guy um, who cautioned us against white saviorism and called himself out for it all the time in class. But he always had this funny saying. He's like, it's not a good idea unless a white guy thinks of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's basically all of education, all of academia, everything that we know and understand is misconceptions uh, for indigenous people because it's not a it does it's not the truth if a white guy doesn't say it's the truth and that's what we come up against every day of our lives well you were just talking about with the john muir trail it was like yeah. that, that was in that was invented by this white guy who ex- explored these places for the first time yeah i mean all national <laughs> parks air quotes <laughs> for audio listeners <laughs> conversely to that like there's a couple of dead man's passes in the united states those were definitely white folks who didn't know how to travel <laughs> or navigate the mountains right like not in a like a horrid sort of like no <laughs> horrid way but i mean there the dead man's pass was an indigenous people i will tell you that 90 percent, 95 percent of the time <laughs> it's like they just keep going back to this pass <laughs> it's just over and over it's like <laughs> 
God. <laughs> oh, well, um, you had mentioned when we were uh, discussing earlier um, misconceptions and you brought up things that have been culturally appropriated. Um, and can we talk about how, because I know I, I feel like a narrative that I've heard a lot is, well, I'm, you know, from a white person saying, well, I'm celebrating it. I don't know why this is considered, you know, something that is wrong. Can we talk about why that is, it's, it is violence to the level, especially now, I feel like you go into some of these stores, I'll call out Los Angeles to the max, you walk into these stores and it's sage, it's native art, it's all these things. Um, yeah. Can we discuss that? All of it made in China. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nice and it's not local. It's not, <laughs> or yeah, made by yeah. artists and workers who are all white people living in uh, uh, Los Feliz. Yeah, Silver Lake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I'm glad that you use the language that appropriation is violence against indigenous people. Um, that is a really great way to put that. And it's a, it's the continued erasure of indigenous people. Also, these are cultural practices, art, language, spirituality that we were literally killed for. Mm. Uh, We lost lives so that these practices could continue to exist. So for folks who are non-native to appropriate it and then claim to be celebrating or honoring our people are um, one, short-sighted, two, very selfish, and three, are ignoring the fact that um, this came at the cost of millions of lives. Uh, Coachella is also the worst. Like, let's call Coachella out for all of the headdresses and that nonsense that gets rocked. Um, Like in my nation, for example, um, headdresses are um, passed from generation to generation, warrior to warrior. I don't think that we have any women currently who are headdress wearers um, because each of those feathers, right, represent a good deed or some um, gift that that person had given to the community in a good way, um, in a selfless way. So there's a lot of um, power and spirituality that uh, is attached to headdresses. So just rocking that half naked at a a Coachella event really is just the most disrespectful, dishonorable thing that could be taking place. And for the love of everything that is good in the world, white folks need to stop telling indigenous people how we need to be honored, right? It goes the other way around. If we want to be honored, we'll tell you how we want to be honored. Usually we can be honored with our land back. Like that's also a, (laughs) I can say that again. I'll say that like every 20 minutes, (laughs) give our land back. That's how you can honor us. Uh, (laughs) Callie, I don't know if you had anything to add to the appropriation thing. Um, yeah, I'll just go on a little bit about the headdress thing because we just, you know, passed Halloween, um, which is a big, a big month. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we go from like Columbus day to Halloween to Thanksgiving and there's always some discussion around Halloween costumes and, and the harm that can come from that. And you already spoke on the headdress and why those are sacred to us, um, and also, you know, native peoples are the only people who can legally own an eagle feather. Um, so all of these imitation headdresses are just that imitation. Um, but going on the Pocahati costumes or the reservation hottie, I think that was what it was called two years ago. Um, this is perpetuating hypersexualization of native women. And like we briefly discussed earlier, you know, we have an epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and indigenous women face much higher rates of sexual violence and rape, you know, going back to, Pocahontas, going back to first contact with settlers. Um, 
And people are often thinking, you know, this is harmless. How could this, how could me dressing like this cause harm against you? I have a friend, Corinne Rice. She's done work with um, the Native communities in Minnesota as far as education with sex trafficking. She's dove into this topic extensively. There's pornography that depicts Native women and white men with a clear power struggle. And, you know, when you start to hypersexualize, you create these fantasies. And the next step with that is fulfillment. And this is how our, our women are taken and assaulted. And it is correlated. Even um, mascots or um, imagery, mockery, you know, Washington football team, the Chicago Blackhawks. A lot of people think that's harmless, but there's been research done by the American Psychological Association that shows this does impact Native people, specifically Native youth, who are seeing their culture be mocked. It's taking the control away from us and how we want to show ourselves in our culture, and it's placing it into a white person's hands. And um, there's been a lot of work, um, as you can probably recall, especially this past year with renaming the Washington football team, which I'm so happy has finally happened. It's been decades since the 60s that Native groups have been fighting for this. And we are now just finally being heard. Um, as also the baseball team, I can't remember which, oh, Cleveland Indians. They also removed their mascot recently, mm. but there's data, there's research that shows this is harmful um, and it needs to stop. So mm. there's a, there's some, I'm always like an action oriented person. So I want to give folks some action steps who are listening, like, well, yeah, what please. can I do? Right. Like they want permission. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of buying native inspired um, buy artwork from natives, inspired natives, right? Like that's the theme and the um, tagline from Eighth Generation by Louis Gong in Seattle. Eighth Generation Marketplace has um, several different textiles and artworks from very prominent indigenous artists. It's indigenous made, it's incredible artwork. Um, If you come across somebody who's indigenous selling at a market, uh, buy that artwork. You don't always have to wear it, but the appreciation is that you have bought it and supported a Native American artist. Um, And then think about, use the lens of, am I buying this um, so that I can showcase it? Like, is it about me or is it about the art itself, right? Art appreciation isn't necessarily have to be a direct, like, showcase of something that I'm doing. It can be the purchase of and you appreciate it and then pay it forward to the next person. So always purchase from Indigenous artists uh, if you can. Here's the other thing that we do because this is capitalism and capitalism is poison. So um, we have native artists who will sell beaded medallions for seven, eight, nine hundred dollars. And folks will scoff at that price as if laying all of those individual size 15 beads and then tacking them down over the course of several hours isn't laborious. Art Mm. is art that is an artwork that needs to be appreciated at its value rather than trying to be negotiated, rather than trying to get it for free. You know, so those are things that I tend to see happen. Um, So so be cautious. There are articles, too. And I'm also again, if you're action oriented, Google it. What is a cultural appropriation and then how can you avoid it there? People have written several, several articles about it. Uh, I do want to underscore the MMIW piece, though. So thank you, Callie, for bringing that up about the hypersexualization and exotic exoticization of Native American women. Um, 
Native American women as a race in the United States are two and a half times more likely to be assaulted in our lifetime, two times more likely to be stalked, five times more likely to experience interracial violence. And uh, in that statistic, the interracial violence is a white partner to an indigenous woman, much like Callie said. And then um, we are 10 times more likely to be murdered on some reservations. So just let that marinate. Compared to every other race in the country, indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered. Um, more than one in three indigenous women will be raped in her lifetime. I am one of those three. I have been raped in my lifetime. And then six in t of 10 indigenous women will be physically assaulted. I have also survived domestic violence. So these are all really heavy, painful um, symptoms of trauma and violence against indigenous people. So unless we acknowledge how the intersections of appropriation, the misrepresentation, the misconceptions, all of those intersections perpetuate racism and oppression against indigenous people, that we're never really going to get to a place where we can move forward with healing, um, move forward with a place of understanding and uh, shared responsibility. So this is a community, community safety issue. It's a community accountability issue, not just your fe white feelings hurt because they can't wear something that looks Native American that was bought in in China. You know, like, we, and this is my real talk in all of this, right? So, um, in order to be good neighbors to each other, these are the conversations that we need to be having. And there are plenty of Native artists that you can buy from. I mean, we have beaters, we have people making denim. We have people making dresses, children's books. We have artists. We have singers, actors, actresses, models. I mean, name it and we have it. Now we have congressmen. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that only took 176 years. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Congresswomen, I should say. Uh -huh. So we're... Um, we are nowhere near as represented as we should be in all of these spaces, political, social, art, Hollywood. You know, we, we need intentional centering of our voices. Um, and, and, you know, that's the work that I that I continue to do. And any any native nonprofit, much like Cal, what Cali is building, like all of those need to be supported and supported in in a vast way. Uh, I'm a believer that the way we spend our money is a statement of our values. So if we are continuing to spend money at Urban Outfitters while ignoring um, the needs of indigenous communities and supporting indigenous artists, then we're going to continue to just be hamsters sprinting in a wheel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about with reservations, were there any peoples that were allowed to stay on their lands when any in the United States historically? Uh, yeah, my reservation is on my indigenous homeland. Um, there are also, and this is another thing people may not know, there are also white people on Indian reservations. Uh, so during the Allotment Act, reservations for my tribe came from the Treaty of 1855 and 1863, um, where my reservation covers five counties in northern, north central Idaho. And uh, is it, like I said, about 700,000 acres. And that is our ancestral homeland for like two or three bands of the tribe. So at that time, there were, I don't know, maybe eight chiefs is what they would call, but they're just like heads of families more mm -hmm. or less. Uh, oddly enough, we like, they were recognized as men, but we're a matriarchy. So I'm sure there were women behind the scenes that never got written into history books, right? But I know mm -hmm. our families are ran by women. So while it's a bunch of men's names, in the history books and on these roles, I know that there is a woman close by right. making those decisions. Yeah. So my, my reservation, short answer, yes, my reservation is on my ancestral homeland. Um, 
the reservation itself is only in Idaho, but our ancestral homeland covers uh, eastern Oregon and Washington, northern Idaho and western Montana and Wyoming. We harvest our buffalo at the north gate of Yellowstone National Park. So it's Gardner, Gardner, Montana area. And there's about four or five tribes where every year we go in and harvest our buffalo in that space because that's also hmm. our ancestral territory. Hmm. Mine also exists within our ancestral territories, which used to span from the west side of the Mississippi River to Montana, Wyoming. Um, so we're located in the southern central part of South Dakota. How and why were these territories created in the first place? Prison <laughs> uh, and then access to resources. So uh, reservations were built strategically, especially if there was gold, timber, or some other resource that could be extracted or mined or harvested commercially in those areas. Uh, so ours at the time was um, agricultural space. They wanted to farm our land and then um, and then harvest timber. And the timber that was harvested here was all sent back east for an exorbitant amount of money. Like it was ridiculous how much money was made off of the timber from Nimipu land. Um, it's also about like, where's gold? Where are the headwaters of certain rivers? Uh, okay. Where are the trade routes? Um, how do you move north, south, east, and west um, without using, you know, without going through indigenous homeland? Because at one okay. point, um, at one point there, there, like we were still fighting and defending our land. So we would be attacking some of these trade routes to make sure that nobody could get through, you know. Okay, so so kind of lining up with, sort of mainstream history this is probably during like the gold rush era in the 1800s or or even earlier it was earlier okay. so westward expansion started in 1810 give or take i mean lewis and clark traveled in 1804 1805 and 1806 and then so after they returned to st louis missouri uh then they were able to open open up the west right okay. uh, open up the west for settlement so then it was traders and settlers and the oregon trail then started at okay. that point uh, bringing disease and virus and whatever other <laughs> atrocities that took place in history. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I think you were still you were still saying that like at that point uh, the native people were still fighting back, and then we were talking about the establishment of the reservations. Oh yeah, sorry. So uh, as indigenous folks were um, continuing to defend our land prior to, and this is, um, let me timeline this. So westward expansion started. That was pre gold rush. And then, um, and then the Indian War started. So that's when the cavalry came in. And then once the cavalry came through, then Gold Rush started. So some of these eras overlapped one, uh, one mm -hmm. another, um, but it wasn't until there was actual resources that could be tangibly harvested in mass were we then isolated to Indian reservations. And then once we were isolated to the reservation or imprisoned on the reservation, our weapons were also taken from us. Our horses were taken from us, that kind of thing. So we were left with flour and lard and salt in a lot of cases is that done by the uh by the army or how how was this done you, using the army said, yeah okay. yeah using the army so lapway idaho is more or less the capital i mean it's where our governing body resigns for the nez Perce tribe uh and it used to be fort lapway idaho so if that gives you any indication and there's always going to be a fort somewhere near or around an indian reservation or a historical site that was a fort mm. at one point okay. yeah and going back even before then what about the initial uh 
settlers, the European people that were coming over in like the 1600s and 1700s, dating all the way back to Columbus, sort of what did that look like in the colonization of those areas? Were the people just then forced out and that was something that eventually expanded until the points that you were talking about in the 1800s of forcing people onto reservations? Um, Yeah, so those early interactions, like we have some old oral history that talks about Spanish exploration um, as far north as Idaho. So Spanish exploration started in the southern southwestern United States. So Mexico, also indigenous, was colonized Mm -hmm. by Spain, right? So their their, uh, impact of colonization mirrors a great deal of what happened to indigenous people in the United States. But during that exploration, before it was ever United States territory, um, that exploration was like it was really just exploration. Like mm-hmm. there weren't, they tried to conquer, but they didn't have a good idea of how to move or navigate the land. Um, some of the tribes in the Southwestern United States were just really big and you couldn't, you have a cavalry of 15 Spanish soldiers. You're not going to be able to overtake a whole city of, you know, um, of, of people. So it was a, uh, I don't think that the impact of those early exploration, early conquerors had had much impact. Otherwise, mm. we'd see it in, in history books. Right. What what I have is only oral history and um, and artifacts. More Although, than anything. Was that the early introduction of disease or was that later on? Because this is also something, you know, we're very briefly taught about in in uh, primary education. Yeah, the disease piece, I mean, that started as early as Columbus. I mean, that first, within that first 10 years, I think it was like 60 million indigenous people lost their lives. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) 60 million. And it actually, from a scientific standpoint, caused a global cooling rather than like a global warming. So it's a very, like, to take that many humans off the planet in a short window of time caused ecological changes. The lack of the carbon output, like from those individuals individual bodies yeah in in those short like or in those um spaces right so those were all islands and yeah. archipelagos the southern uh-huh. united states southwestern and southeastern united states what we now know as the united states um so that disease like <laughs> there are people who argue um that that wasn't the fault of Columbus or any sure. explorers that, that came out, right. like that came through. But I mean, if we have no immunity, um, I mean, what do they expect to happen? There was a, uh, an interesting meme. I actually read it just before we got on, uh, on our call together, uh, where it's like, Oh, going, um, bringing disease, to a family with very little immunity seems like a very quintessentially Thanksgiving thing to do. And like, it's laughable, like painfully laughable, right? Like, oh yeah, uh, the irony is not lost, mm. right? Like people need to stay home. There's a pandemic on and we can't expose each other because we all have very little immunity, any at all. Mm. So we've come full circle, 1600s yeah. to 2020. Yeah. Well, speaking of Thanksgiving, can we touch on that? Because like, we mentioned this is dropping on Thursday, November, what, 20, I don't even know, don't the 27th, no whatever it's going to be. And, um, and it's a day where a lot of the United States is celebrating Thanksgiving. Um, can we talk about the actual history of what that looked like first? And then I would love to talk about, you know, um, for instance, Beck and I are both parents, you know, one of my big goals is to make sure that my daughter is educated 
correctly on what this, you know, quote unquote holiday actually is moving forward with our family. Yeah. And also, Ty, you brought up earlier that you're like, I like to give actionable steps. So at any point in the conversation, if you're like, these are actual things that you can do or participate in or things you can read, please feel more than free to include that. Well, the Thanksgiving story myth doesn't include my specific indigenous nation. It's the story of the Mashpee Wampanoag people. And this myth talks about how it was a celebratory dinner between the, you know, the pilgrims and the Indians. Um, the Mashpee Wampanoag, they, they live on the east coast of the country, currently known as Cape Cod. And they were there for the first contact with settlers. Um, So this was not, the Mayflower was not the first or the second time they had encountered European settlers and colonizers. Um, But this specific time, you know, they showed up with a boatload of unprepared people who had trouble adapting to the land and had trouble feeding themselves and keeping themselves sustained. Um, The Mashpee Wampanoag people did help those settlers um, survive, teach them how to um, harvest and eventually, after like six months of, of living near each other, they signed a mutual treaty of protection, um, saying that they would protect each other from any outside attacks. And the specific night, there was a lot of gunfire and noise coming from the European settlement area. And the Mashpee Wampanoag people went over to see what was going on to scope it out since they had signed in this mutual treaty of protection and they found that there was not an attack but a celebration they were celebrating a large harvest um, the mashpee wampanoag people had not been invited to this big celebration although you know our our school textbooks tell us that they were and that they all sat down and enjoyed a meal together yeah. um, and this story i've listened to from two mashpee wampanoag scholars um, paula peters and linda coombs and they actually just released a podcast episode, Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving, um, which discusses this in further detail. Um, again, it's their story, really. I can give you a condensed version, but um, the podcast is found on All My Relations, which is all an indigenous podcast. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. We'll include um, that in the episode notes, broads, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And um, then, you know, like 350 years later, there was a um, Wampanoag man, Frank Peters, who was invited to speak in Cape Cod about the anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower. And he had his speech written out and prepared and uh, he was suddenly uninvited. And this was due to his speech discussing the war, the genocide, the disease that was brought in when the Mayflower arrived. Um, And instead of giving this speech at this specific event, he ended up giving it to a group of indigenous people. And that day became known as the National Day of Mourning in 1970, Mm -hmm. um, which is a day that is commemorated across Indian country from coast to coast. Um, And then in 2007, the Mashpee Wampanoag, the same people who, who had first contact with the settlers, were finally given federal recognition status from President Obama in like 2008. Um, and during the Trump administration, that federal status is now um, back in court, trying to be revoked, trying to take their land away. So uh, it just kind of shows you how much can happen in 
centuries. You know, where are we at today? I'm not up to date on as of right now what where that legal battle is at. Maybe Ty, you might know some more about that. I think we're on the same page. I I haven't heard any movement in that case recently either. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good recap of what actually happened. It's a celebration of a massacre um, rather than, um, um, you know, this exchange of, you know, healing and thankfulness. And uh, I contributed to a an article last year on CNN. It was um, a, an Internet article on Thanksgiving and how we can talk to kids about Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving or day of mourning, how, however we choose to recognize it. Mm. I personally do not celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, it's a day I spend, or it's a whole weekend I spend with my brother generally hunting or hanging out with family. And that's what um, Congresswoman Holland was talking about was that it's an opportunity to be intentionally thankful, even though that that is a practice that mm. we have daily in indigenous communities, especially communities that um, practice sweat house or long house, right? Like that's a very consistent, always expressing gratitude, um, always expressing love. It's not a kind of a one and done kind of a deal. Uh, same goes for Mother's Day. Ironically, we thank our mothers all the time. <laughs> we recognize <laughs> wow. and honor all the time. Yeah. <laughs> what a novel idea. <laughs> weird, weird women being centered in the conversation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so some of the uh, some of the action steps I, I suggested for folks that were reading is that review what work your school is sending home for your children to do mm. in response to giving um are they using appropriate language is the artwork designed by somebody who's native american are they sharing a native american story of thanksgiving um are they talking about the real story of what happened and not this myth that gives everybody warm fuzzies uh and i i know parents there are so i'm not a parent i actually am allergic to children but um <laughs> understandable <my> <laughs> Kids are are really resilient and very open to having conversations, even about things that adults think they may not understand. Right. I, I have a niece, two nieces. Um, they're eight and 12 now, but I've been having what we would consider adult conversations with them for a very, very long time. And they always get it. I put it in words that they can receive. I have them repeat it back to me. So I know that they retain and understand. And then and anytime they want to circle back to that conversation, we do. I used to um, invest a lot of energy in going to classrooms in whatever neighborhood I was living to tell the true story uh, of Thanksgiving, but that doesn't ever bode well with families who are white or Christian, and you have this indigenous person telling them that Thanksgiving is a garbage holiday. So mm -hmm. I have stopped doing that. <laughs> um, and then the other piece to that, too, is um, so not just the books, reviewing what they're learning in school, but what is your ongoing effort around ensuring that true indigenous history is being shared across mm. the board, not holiday by holiday, but what does the curriculum look like across the board? Mm. Uh, I always try to tell educators and parents like Native American history isn't its own lane. Native American history is American history, mm. right? Like we predate mm. what we now know as the United States. So our history is literally the foundation and back the backbone of, of this settler colonial occupancy now. So we have to, we have to be better about having these conversations. Um, so those are kind of the high level things. I love the suggestion of the All My Relations podcast, which is phenomenal. Um, 
I tend to be a little bit more anarchist than most. So I love the Indigenous Action podcast. Um, They are Indigenous anarchists and uh, have a really great discussion about things taking and land back and um, decolonizing uh, land acknowledgements and that kind of thing. When we were talking about educating children, too, I was just thinking how as white parents, I think we have the tendency to overcomplicate the discussion because we have no issue. uh, Jess and I both grew up uh, Christian, we have no issue telling three and four year olds about Jesus getting nailed to the cross mm-hmm. or being mm-hmm. beaten to death or having a crown of thorns put on his head. Extremely violent, graphic stories that we're telling young children. Uh, and like the way we teach children in schools too about the Holocaust. And we get very explicit and very graphic and very real about those descriptions. And it's it seems something that I've tended to do myself too is sort of this choke up of like, well, how am I going to talk to my child about like these violent atrocities as if that's not something we already incorporate into our education on a regular basis? Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think, being a parent as well, I, I, that, that pullback, which I'm guilty of, um, after, you know, the murder of George Floyd and my daughter were driving and, um, you know, uh, there's people holding signs and then we're participating in a protest. And she obviously is like, let's talk about this. And my immediate, you know, reaction is how am I going to frame this for her? Because she's young. Well, spoiler alert, like she processed it. Mm hmm. And it was something that she needed to hear. And so, you know, I think uh, it's just such a, and I'm grateful for the reminder is, you know, when we're having these conversations with our little ones, it's like, no, these conversations have to be had and they'll understand. Um, So for us now, um, you know, and our listeners, we've talked about some actionable steps. Um, We'd love to hear, you know, from both of you with maybe the work that you both are currently doing if there's anything that our listeners and ourselves can, um, you know, you obviously have thrown out some great recommendations for podcasts, but um, whether it be uh, different nonprofits, Kelly, yours, uh, different resources um, that we can continue this conversation. And like you were saying, Ty, not just about the Thanksgiving holiday and all the lies that were told about this, but just to continue this and continue the conversation. Yeah. And also places where we can sort of like witness sort of the reclamation of um, like how you were talking about uh, what was the celebration that you touched on earlier that you were a part of, Callie? Oh, the welcome home ceremony. Yeah. And maybe if there's um, uh, just other things you can highlight of like active ways that indigenous people are getting their land back and are sort of like imparting the reclaiming the culture too that's been taken or not mm-hmm. taken um stolen yes stolen um well like i mentioned before i do work with native women's wilderness which is um a non-profit mainly in the outdoor industry but part of my job as a coordinating director is to organize efforts to give back to our communities that raised us to the nations where we come from. Um, this past spring, our founder, Jalen, she organized an effort on the Navajo nation where she's from um, for COVID-19 relief. Mm. Uh, so she was able to deliver personal care items and also food boxes to families in need on the Navajo nation. Um, and during this time of year, we start to give our, or start to organize our 
Native Women's Wilderness Gives Back campaign. And it will likely, again, focus on COVID-19 just due to the ongoing pandemic um, and how it's impacting more of our Native communities. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically South Dakota, you know, following Sturgis Motorcycle Festival, that the state has seen over 50% positivity rates. And every day I see another family member, a relative or friend back at Rosebud, either testing positive or losing another family member. So I do want to let people know that the Rosebud Sioux Tribe uh, website has a COVID-19 relief fund Hmm. where people can donate um, either money or masks or gloves. Um, And to keep an eye out for our fundraiser that should be going live sometime within this next week as well. Sounds like incredible work, Callie. Thank you. I always love to see, like, this is something to celebrate, right, for listeners. Uh, indigenous women are just badass. Like, we, <laughs> we've we been carrying our communities for hundreds of years, and we still continue to do so and actively um, create solutions if solutions don't already exist towards our resilience and for our thriving and for abundance in our communities. So I appreciate when I meet people who are also doing this work like with me, even though we're not in the same community. So I appreciate you. a lot of gratitude, Callie. Um, I'm working, um, I work in a couple of different places. So like I said, I work for the Idaho Coalition Against right. Sexual Domestic Violence. Um, my work there is specifically around um, domestic violence and sexual assault in Native American communities. Um, at all times, we are constantly fundraising for missing and murdered Indigenous women's um, research, uh, data analysis, cr- mapping, um, building and creating summits for intertribal and interagency collaboration. All of this takes money. Uh, I, more importantly, am about to start a fundraising campaign for the Indigenous Idaho Alliance. And that has been um, a fledgling nonprofit for several years. We are now officially a 501c3 as of this year, but the funds that we're raising and a lot of our efforts have been going towards feeding communities um, in the face of COVID-19. So those of you who are in urban settings may not know this. There is an indigenous nation, the Fort McDermott tribe, which are Paiute Shoshone people. Uh, once they had one infection of COVID, the whole town got it, the whole community got it. And so that's like three or 400 people. And then their one tiny convenience store, which is like, like a little half gas station was wiped out of all of the food. They had curfews, so couldn't really go in and out of town because they were isolating. So what we ended up doing was fundraising and supply drive for them. In about 36 hours, we had food and produce and meat and cheese and dog food and cleaning supplies. And we were able to truck it down. Like it was a full, like, 20 foot trailer that was filled to the brim that was sent down to that reservation. We still have those needs. These communities who are remote anywhere between three and four hours away from an urban center don't have access to basic human needs and resources, Mm -hmm. which are water, food, (laughs) PPE, So that fundraising drive, we're going to kick it off on Giving Tuesday, which is December 1st. We'll be fundraising all the way through January. Um, If you're local, you're listening and you're local to Boise, Idaho, I will be taking supplies uh, at the Linen Building downtown. Um, But they can find um, more information on that fundraiser uh, from the Indigenous Idaho Alliance Facebook page. 
And then um, my efforts as an individual woman, I'm both black and I'm indigenous. I'm an anti-racism educator. I'm an anti-oppression educator and I'm a storyteller, right? Mm -hmm. So um, any opportunity that I can show up in a space and talk about our more contemporary issues, um, healthcare access, reproductive access, um, COVID-19 response and missing and murdered indigenous women, Mm -hmm. supporting black lives, indigenous sovereignty. I'm happy to show up and do that work also. Thank you both so much. I mean, we're both so grateful to have you on and to give us your time. And I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation because obviously it was just like an introduction, an introduction. And we're both grateful for you both educating us. And just, you know, on a personal note, um, thank you so much. As like I said, I've said it five times, but as a mother, uh, that's been kind of what's been in my mind's eye over the, the, the course of this past year to really focus on. And so, so grateful for individuals like you taking your time to help me that I can try to start this conversation with my kiddo. Thank you so much for both of you joining us. And we really appreciate your time and your energy being here. And I think this is going to be incredibly valuable for our community. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was great to share this space with both of you and Ty. I learned a lot from you as well. And I hope this really provokes a discussion in the listeners and continued education. Yeah. And then also, where can we find each of you as well? I'm on Instagram, yeah. <laughs> uh, Instagram at Ty Simpson, Facebook, um, Facebook's a little bit harder to find me. Uh, Ty.Simpson.1 is my handle from Facebook. And those are the only two socials I get on. I'm an old millennial. So social media exhausts me. Yeah. <laughs> no TikTok for you. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, I'm on Instagram as well at Callie Wolf. Um, and in the spirit of giving, I have a holiday shopping guide that features all native shops so oh, amazing fantastic i'll buy from small businesses awesome <laughs> awesome oh i have a website too i'm at tysimpson.com perfect my ted talk is there i want everybody to watch yes. my ted talk please Ooh. i watched the ted talk it was fantastic <laughs> highly recommend 10 out of 10 <laughs> awesome. well thank you so much and, and uh, uh, with that yeah broads chat soon chat soon <laughs>